0: Last week, we saw God deliver Israel safely through the Red Sea, even as he drowned the armies of Egypt beneath its waves. As Pastor Chad pointed out, this was the final decreation of Egypt, even as it was a new creation for Israel. But the Exodus story doesn't end there. God doesn't take Israel directly into the Promised Land, does he? First, he takes Israel through The wilderness now we can draw a parallel with our own experience we too live between the already and the not yet in christ god has already delivered us from sin and death but god hasn't yet whisked us up to heaven he doesn't instantly usher in the new heavens and the new earth much as we might wish he would Instead, God takes us through the wilderness of life in a fallen world. So if we can begin to understand why and how God takes Israel through their wilderness, we may better understand how to walk by faith through our own. And so with that goal before us, let me pray for our time in the word. God of the Exodus, your word says you have already delivered us from sin and death through your son Jesus Christ. Yet here we are, afflicted by our own sin, by the sin of others, surrounded by death and decay on every side. Teach us to walk through the wilderness, not as those who rebel against you, but as those who trust and obey, who depend upon you for our daily bread. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we begin in Exodus chapter chapter 15 this morning. Exodus chapter 15 at verse 22 and there we read then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter therefore it was named Marah which is the Hebrew word for bitter and the people grumbled against Moses saying what shall we drink And he cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Now we're going to see three uh, kind of primary themes today as we walk through these passages. And those are grumbling, provision, and testing. Grumbling, provision, and testing. And you see them all illustrated in what I just read for you. The Israelites have traveled three days without water, and then when, when they finally find water, it's undrinkable. So Israel begins to grumble against Moses. They begin to complain about his leadership and their situation. Now, let's be honest. After three days with no water source, all of us would probably begin to question the competence of our guide, but Moses cries out to Yahweh, and Yahweh shows him a log. Now the the word is literally tree. Yahweh showed him a tree. It's translated log because I guess it's it's kind of hard to imagine Moses throwing a whole tree into the water, he probably didn't, but know that the word is actually tree. And Moses throws this tree into the bitter water and the water becomes sweet. So we've had grumbling but now we have provision God provides God makes bitter water sweet he provides for Israel's need there's probably some symbolism here right that word bitter that was used to describe the bitter service that Israel endured under Pharaoh it was used to describe the bitter herbs that they ate at the Passover meal and so perhaps God is showing Israel how he will turn the bitterness of Egypt into the sweetness of the promised land, a land that is said to be flowing with milk and honey. Trees and, and fresh water, they appear together elsewhere in Scripture. We have later, much later on Ezekiel's vision of uh, the ideal temple in Ezekiel 47. And he says there, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other, And he said to me, when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. That same imagery is then picked up in the book of Revelation, where it describes the church, the new Jerusalem. Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So what we have here at Marah is an image of God through Moses planting this tree in bitter water. And the water is turned sweet. It brings new life. It brings healing. Indeed, God will name himself Israel's healer in just a moment here. But he is showing them the kind of provision that they can expect of him. Even in the wilderness, if Israel will remain faithful to God, he will transform bitterness into sweetness. And perhaps also this. If Israel will remain faithful to him, Israel too will be a tree that makes the bitter water of the Gentile sea sweet. They will bear fruit and heal the nations where they are planted. And so Israel is the tree that makes bitter water sweet as well. Verse 25 says, Moses threw it into the water. Now when you take a tree or part of a tree in hand, what does it become? Becomes a staff, right? Every kid that's gone on a wilderness hike knows this that branch instantly becomes a staff when you pick it up and so Moses takes this tree and he throws it into the water and the water becomes sweet it's like his staff which earlier God used Moses's staff to relieve the bitterness of slavery in Egypt Moses used his staff to turn the water in the Nile to blood which is kind of a reversal of this miracle And he used his staff to part the water of the Red Sea, turning that water sweet for the Israelites and turning it bitter to the Egyptians. And so here, God is continuing to act through Moses' staff, and he will use Moses' staff to bring more water shortly. Now, as Christians, we can see all of this as a type of Christ, who, according to the apostles, was hung on a tree, in his crucifixion, and on that tree Jesus was cast into the bitter waters of our fallen flesh, cast into sin and death for us. And God did this in order to bring sweetness by the resurrection of Jesus, making him the true tree of life who brings healing to the nations. Verse 25, therefore Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, provision, grumbling, testing, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh your healer. God is testing Israel in the wilderness. Remember this. And what is the the test according to verse 26? Will they listen to God? Will they obey His word? If they do, God says, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on Egypt. And the diseases there, that word refers to the plagues. Right? God has already sheltered Israel from the plagues in Egypt. He passed over them, and God will continue to shelter Israel if they will trust him and obey his words. But if they reject his words, as Pharaoh did, then Yahweh will treat them as he treated Pharaoh. He will plague them with diseases. He says, for I am Yahweh Rapha, Yahweh your healer. He's showing Israel his character. He is the healing God. He is the one who makes bitterness into sweetness. He is the one who heals diseases. He is the one who gives life to the dead. Verse 27, Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now, we, we, we're given some very specific numbers here, aren't we? and we know biblical authors don't waste ink and so we have 12 springs and we have 70 palm trees around the springs we know 12 is the number of the tribes of israel and often represents israel but also we know that 70 is the number of nations listed in genesis 10 and so 70 often represents the nations of the world and so probably we're to see this little detail as a uh, symbolic support of that point that i made earlier if israel will be faithful to yahweh he will use them to bring life to the nations just as these 12 springs water the 70 palm trees and just as the tree makes the bitter water sweet israel is to be a tree of life that heals the gentile sea now this brings us to chapter 16 chapter 16 of exodus they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger hunger. So we have another story here of grumbling, of provision, and of testing. First we get more grumbling. They're threatened by thirst, now they're threatened by hunger, and so they grumble against Moses. Now notice that in their hunger, in their fear, the Israelites default to the old ways. They default to the old world. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt when we ate bread to the full. Israel identifies with the Egyptians rather than with Yahweh. They would have rather died by the plagues with the Egyptians than die in this wilderness with Yahweh. So much for leaving the leaven of Egypt behind. Now how could God respond to their grumbling? How do you act when you've bent over backwards to help someone and and they respond by criticizing you? Parents, how do you respond when your kids are constantly bugging you with, I'm hungry, though they didn't eat the supper that you painstakingly cooked for them, right? How would we respond? But notice, God doesn't punish Israel for their grumbling just yet. He's still teaching them. Verse 4, then Yahweh said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So instead of destroying Israel as they have asked, Yahweh promises to rain down bread from heaven. And one commentator writes, if any need convincing of the grace of God in the Old Testament, they need only look here, right? God's response to their grumbling is gracious provision giving the Israelites favor, though they have done nothing to deserve it. And that's the definition of grace. And so God gives provision, but he also gives law, instructions on how to steward the provision that he has given. He commands them only gather enough for one day, and so the law provides this test. Israel may choose to trust and obey God in this or not. Now, for whose benefit is this test? Is this so Israel can prove themselves worthy of God's love? Or is it so they can learn something about God? Moses tells them the purpose of the test. Verse 6, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see The glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling. The test is there to teach Israel, isn't it? That they would come to know Yahweh. That they would come to know the God who defines himself as the covenant-keeping God, who delivers his people. See, instead of teaching to the test, God tests to teach. To teach his people who he is so that they will trust him, so that they will depend upon him and upon him alone. And so we see what happens. Verse 13, In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. And so we have provision, quail, meat, manna, bread from heaven. God provides for his people in their need. And now we have the test. Verse 16, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. The implication being that you are to take no more than that. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, as much as each he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. God tells them to gather only what they can eat. Why do you think God doesn't want them hoarding this manna? He seems to want Israel to trust him every day. Trust Him anew every day. It's one of the main lessons Israel needed to learn in the wilderness, and it's one of the main lessons we need to learn in our wilderness. We are to trust God one day at a time, renewing our trust with the renewing of the sun each morning. It seems like a simple command. Uh, We use the saying all the time, right? Take it one day at a time. But it's so hard to obey, isn't it? Having to depend on God each day, it raises our fears. We, we fear God will not provide, that he will not come through, or at least that he won't provide in the way we think he should provide. We fear that we will not survive if we, if we don't take matters into our own hands, store up a little extra, take a little bit more. And so we violate the law of God trying to secure our own deliverance. Verse 22, on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what Yahweh has commanded, tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh, bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses had commanded them, and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to Yahweh. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Now this is the very first reference to this idea of Sabbath that we have in the scriptures. It comes in the context of this provision. That Sunday through Friday, Israel would perform their labor. They would gather what Yahweh provides, but Sunday would be I'm sorry, Saturday would be a day of rest. No work was to be done, just as God rested on the seventh day when he created the world. Now, this principle, the Sabbath, will be uh, codified when God gives the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. We'll see that um, next summer. But it is foreshadowed here in the bread from heaven. So think about how significant this idea of Sabbath, of rest, is for a people coming out of slavery think of what this shows them about their god the true god now he values work but he also values rest and he values the giving of rest their previous master pharaoh he did not give the people rest he made their labor bitter pharaoh did not give the people what they needed to rest He didn't give them the supplies that they needed to build his buildings. And yet, Yahweh gives them extra on Friday so that they can rest on Saturday. God is a God of rest and a giver of rest. But still, verse 27, On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. You see, we just can't resist taking the wheel, can we? Our fears and anxieties keep us from enjoying the rest that Yahweh provides. We know they had enough. They didn't need to go out and gather. Why were they out there? Verse 28, And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. We're told the manna here is like wafers, that it's made with honey. And that's significant, right? Because in this way, this manna is a foretaste of the promised land, which is a land flowing with milk and honey. And so you see that even in the wilderness, God is giving Israel a foretaste of what they can expect if they remain faithful with him, a foretaste of their future destination. And he does the same for us in the Lord's Supper, doesn't he? You see, our destiny is to be resurrected and glorified as Jesus Christ already is. So we get to feed on His resurrected flesh and blood as a foretaste of what we will experience in the future in the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth with Christ. And so this foretaste is meant to sustain us now in this wilderness life, giving us hope for the feast that we will find on the other side. Now we come to chapter 17, verse 1. Another story of provision, testing, and grumbling. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of Yahweh, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to Yahweh, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Masah and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Yahweh by saying, is Yahweh among us or not? So once again, right, we see Israel grumbling against Moses. They refused to believe God even after multiple signs we've already seen today. Now who else in this book refused to believe Yahweh even after seeing multiple signs? Pharaoh, right? Again, Israel is identifying more with their Egyptian oppressors than with the God who has delivered them. And so again, we see this theme of testing, but this time it's a little different, isn't it? This time, it is the people of Israel who test God. They're testing God. God has tested them to see if they will be faithful. Now they are testing him To see if he will be faithful. What's the irony here, right? Yahweh has consistently shown himself to be faithful throughout this entire exodus time and time again, but Israel has continually shown themselves to be unfaithful. Is God the one in need of testing here? And we see again the theme of provision. God tells Moses, you shall, strike the walk, you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Now, what more unlikely water source than a rock? And so this provision is going to show that God has total control over his creation. And something interesting here, God says that he himself, that he will stand before them there on the rock. It's kind of hard to imagine what that is referring to, what that looks like. Perhaps this is the uh, pillar of fiery cloud, and it's going to uh, land on this rock, a light on this rock. But either way, it's what we, what's pictured there is that God is identifying himself with the rock. He's going to be standing on this rock. And we know God himself is rock-like because he is constant, he is faithful, he is strong. He's often called the rock of his people, but God is also the provider, and he's also the source of life, and so a rock that pours out water is this wonderful compound image of who God is. Now, the apostle Paul picks up this imagery in our epistle reading for today, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. He says, "'For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers,' that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now how can Paul say that this rock was jesus when jesus hadn't come to earth yet at the time of the exodus they didn't know anything about jesus we've already seen that the rock was a symbol for yahweh haven't we that he's the deliverer of god's people and we know as the apostle paul knows that jesus christ is the image of the invisible he is the firstborn son of the father And so in Jesus, the God of the Exodus has taken on flesh. So Paul can say that all these events of Yahweh's deliverance looked forward to and were fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. And now Christians, we've often made another connection here because not only do we have a rock of provision, but the rock provides when it is struck. Just as the rock was struck and poured out water, so Jesus was struck by a spear at his crucifixion and water poured from his side. Thus, Christ is shown to be the means through which God delivers his people and gives them life, just as the rock in the wilderness did for Israel. So the, the wilderness wanderings of, of Israel, they begin with these three interesting stories. We have that water that was made sweet at Marah. We have bread provided in the wilderness of sin. And we have water provided from the rock at Rephidim. In each of these stories, we see that pattern of grumbling and then God's provision and then his testing of the people or their testing of him. Why is there grumbling in the wilderness? Because the wilderness is not an easy place. There's no food or water for crying out loud, right? The wilderness is a place where there is nothing to rely upon except God's provision. God is forcing Israel into a situation where they have to trust him. And they grumble about it. Now, frustration and crying out, it's not always a bad thing, right? Consider all the Psalms that cry out to God, wondering if He has abandoned His people. But the difference is the Psalms are cries of faith. They are cries of faith where the singer cries out to God because God is the only hope. The complaining of Israel is different. It's rebellious complaining. It is a faithless complaining. It would rather look backward to Egypt than look to God for deliverance. But also notice that in each of these three cases, how does God respond to their grumbling? He responds with gracious provision, doesn't He? He shows Himself to be worthy of their trust. He shows Himself to be sovereign over the dangers of the wilderness. He shows Himself to be committed to the covenant promises he made to Abraham. And in these stories, God tests Israel. He tests his people. But not to see if they will prove worthy of his love, right? They already have his love. We're on the other side of the Red Sea. God has already delivered his people from Egypt. God is not waiting to see if Israel will be good enough to deserve his salvation. God has already saved his people before he tests them. See, God tests those he loves. God is testing his people for their benefit. He is testing them to disciple them so that they will learn what it is to trust and to obey him for their good. And if they can learn to trust and obey God in the wilderness, that will lead to flourishing and fruitfulness when they arrive in the promised land. And we will go on to see whether they do this or not. But this is where we're going to pause our our series in Exodus for now. We'll come back to this book in June. We'll meet Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. But for today, the New Testament tells us about another Son of God who passed through the waters. God's Son, Jesus. He was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And immediately after delivering him through the waters, what did God do? He sent his Son into the wilderness. Jesus spends 40 days there. Surely a reflection of the 40 years that Israel will spend in this wilderness. And there Jesus faces three temptations, three tests just as Israel faced three tests in our passage. In his wilderness, Jesus is also tested with hunger. The tempter comes to him and tells him to turn stones to bread, perhaps recalling the water from the rock and the manna from heaven. But rather than grumbling about his hunger as Israel did, or grasping after more manna as Israel did, Jesus preaches to Satan... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus passes his first test. Satan tests Jesus' obedience once again, takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and tells him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. God will deliver you. But Jesus quotes Scripture again. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, where Israel tested the Lord at Rephidim, Jesus refuses to test the Lord in his wilderness. And thus he passes the second test as well. Satan takes Jesus to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, and says he will give them to Jesus if Jesus will only bow down before him. And unlike Israel, who so quickly reverted to the old world, who longed to return to the kingdom of Egypt, even though it was a kingdom of oppression, who pined for the days of service to wicked Pharaoh, unlike Israel, Jesus says to Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so Jesus passes the final test to The Gospel authors are showing us that Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Son of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that were made to the people of Israel. Jesus, too, is sent into the wilderness. He, too, is tested. But where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. He trusts God. He clings to God's word. He obeys God's word. And so the wilderness for him is not a place of condemnation and death, but a place of glorification. He is shown to be the faithful son. He is matured. He is perfected through suffering. And being made perfect, he becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, according to Hebrews 5 verse 9. As the one who passed the test of the wilderness, Jesus has become our only hope of passing the test of our wilderness. How does God provide for us in our wilderness? He gives us Jesus. Jesus is the word, the water, the bread, and the wine that will sustain us in our wilderness and bring us safely through and we must receive this bread from heaven we must feed on him he says whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and i will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and i in him See, the only way that we can pass through the wilderness of this life and all the tests it brings is if we abide in Jesus Christ. We must by faith remain in the one who has already passed through the wilderness in our place. We must cling to the one who has passed the test for us. And so how do we do that? How do we remain in him? How do we not grumble and rebel, but walk by faith? in this wilderness we do it by trusting jesus by being baptized into his baptism by hearing his word receiving it and obeying it we do it by feeding on him and receiving his life at his table we will never pass the test in our own frail power indeed the whole point of the test was learning To trust God to do the saving. Trust God to do the providing. Resting in the provision that he has given. And this provision is Jesus. So let us rest in the midst of the wilderness. Let us worship our Savior and him alone. Let us receive his word and keep it. Let us look to the tree of his cross which makes bitter water sweet. Let us feast on the bread from heaven which is given for the life of the world. Let us stand firm on the rock whose stricken side is the fountain of eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as those hungry and tired, still clinging to the old ways, still trying to secure our own safety and security and provision, Help us to receive the provision you have rained down on us from heaven. Help us to put our trust in your faithful son who has passed the test. And nourished and strengthened by him, let us be flourishing trees who bear healing fruit for the nations. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.